You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. This is Abby here. I am joined with one of the most influential people, I would say, that I've met recently. (laughs) (laughs) An Instagram influencer, if you will. Yeah, without an account. (laughs) Exactly. That's how great he is. Uh, Chris, Chris, welcome back to the show, man. How's everything been going? Uh, good, good. Thanks for having me back, Abby. It's uh, it's been yeah, it's been uh, uh, I don't know, a few weeks, months. I don't. It's it's hard to keep track of time with every day being the Ground same. Hog, but uh, yeah. yeah, great to be back. Uh, got a got a couple jabs in my arm, so feeling really good. Everybody, go get vaccinated. Um, and uh, yeah, great to be here. Yeah, that's not bad actually. It was it was funny on my way to. So originally, when I got um, my vaccines. It was um, like, you, you know, you, you called in the first one and the second was like four months later. Mm-hmm. Now they've called me back being like, hey, you should push up the appointment. And then I was walking to work today and like right at the corner of like one of the most like busiest intersections in Toronto, there was four pop-up clinics. That's, That's pretty cool to see. So they're doing a great job on the vaccine rollout finally. So, um, you know, we think that'll be pretty good. And Ontario is starting to open back up. So I think we enter phase three next week. That's what I hear. Yeah. Rumor has it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to be, but uh, I'm excited for it. Yeah, it should be good. Should be good. Yeah. But uh, no, Chris, um, thank you so much for coming back. I know last time we were here, you and I were chatting about this, but uh, we had a little bit of an audio issue, so I think we got that all cleared up, and both of our voices now are going to come in buttery smooth. So yeah, and I have, I have a retraction. I, uh, I incorrectly stated that uh, that Hexo had launched their drinks with THC. Uh, they have built the facility, or are building the facility, is, is my understanding, but. Those hitting the shelves uh, is TBD at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. We appreciate uh, we appreciate, it. and that's one of the best things about this podcast is you know when we get things wrong, we do uh, we do come out and talk about it, and uh, more often enough for people who know that happens a lot. <laughs> yeah, right on. Right on. <laughs> yeah, um, but Chris, yeah. So this is a, a, a pretty different episode than we would typically have, and. Um, what, what we're going to talk about right now is, you know, there, there's so much going on in the cannabis space. We've everybody who knows and who listens to us here has we've outlined over and over and over the opportunities uh, in investing in cannabis. But today we're going to take sort of like a, a, a different approach. And the first thing we're going to talk about is uh, Shikari Richardson, a U.S. sprinter who was disqualified from the Tokyo Olympics for testing positive for uh, for cannabis and um you know, it's a it's a very hot topic right now. It's not something that, uh, it, you know, what we're, we're, we're going to delve into it and see what our thoughts are onto that. And then as well, for our listeners that invest outside of cannabis, uh, there is a new topic that's in vogue, which is the ESG movement, which stands for environmental and social corporate governance. And it impacts how companies are run and recently how they attract capital. Now, as we get deeper into this, we start realizing that there's these uh, SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals put out by the UN. There's about 17 of these goals. And now some investment mandates state that you must meet a certain number of these goals before they invest. Now, at the present, this isn't something that's immediately affecting cannabis, but like anything else, the sector could change quite quickly. So I think it's worth discussing. Last but not least, if we have time for this one, this one was really funny. 
Chris and I were just spitballing before and uh, we were talking about Tilray and sort of the pop-up um, that Tilray had when it first came out and how it was essentially the original GameStop. And Chris has some, uh, some, some, some intriguing insights into this that sort of explain why the pop-up happened as it did and why it was so dramatic, but not as impactful as it should have been. Um, so jam-packed agenda. With that, let's get started with the runner. U.S. 100-meter dash, uh, Shikari Richardson. Um, I don't really know the story of that too well. I just I just know, you know, I've seen a couple posts about it, and I know that she got disqualified for cannabis. But, um, Chris, yeah, so so tell us about it. So, yeah, so this is the, um, this is the cannabis topic du jour, uh, so to speak, with uh, Shikari Richardson being um, essentially her qualifying run in the 100-meter Olympic race was annulled, um, which – in, and it was a result of, um, there's kind of different categories of substances that you can have in, um, or can't have rather when you're, uh, when you're an international athlete. And I believe that cannabis sits on the banned substance list. Not, it's not considered a performance enhancing drug, uh, per se, but rather that it is just a banned substance that you're not allowed to have in your system, um, for various reasons. Uh, and, um, I think that with countries like Canada who have legal cannabis and uh, many other countries around the world who have legal medical cannabis, um, who's to say that this was not, you know, a medical use um, uh, or otherwise, but what it's really done and what I think is the most interesting thing for the conversation around the cannabis industry and for the conversation for cannabis investors is it's done something that none of the other conversations around U.S., federal legalization have done, which is there's a lot of conversation around, uh, you know, Booker, Wyden, Schumer. There's a lot of conversations Mm -hmm. around the SAFE Act. There's a lot of conversations around, um, you know, just various different approaches. Um, And there's obviously challenges in inching these things forward for various reasons, which I think will probably make a bit more sense to talk about some of that, um, some some of that discontinuity, so to speak, in when we talk about ESG. But what what has happened with all of this, and what what I think a lot of um, a lot of folks are are kind of looking at, and and not necessarily, or maybe reacting to it, is this is the first time, to my knowledge, that the conversation around cannabis has actually come out of the White House. Mm-hmm. So there is an actual acknowledgement of okay, this is not quite right from the White House, and to me, I see that as honestly the first signal that we have seen. Um, whether we go through campaigns, we go to primaries, there has been very little discussion, if any, at all from President Biden. Yeah. And if you are a U.S. political um, addict, or um, you know, or or you're <laughs> or, or just curious, um, you'll you'll know that there's a dramatic difference between the president of the United States that is currently sitting in the White House and the one that was there for the preceding five years, four years, um, <laughs> and uh, seemed like forever. The And and the big difference is that um, President Biden is a is a career politician. Um, and there is yeah. some things that, are, that come with a career politician that I think have been to some degree a bit of a fre- breath of fresh air for a lot of operators. And one of those things is um, for lack of a better word, predictability. 
politicians and, and historical politicians who have been in in the Senate since the 1970s, they got into politics in the 1970s not because it was a popularity contest, but because they were they were looking at it as a part of their civil duty. And when that was more of the conversation for politicians, not so much about running negative ads against competition, but rather talking about the good things that they're going to do, the view was, I'm going to tell the people this is what I want to do in Washington, or you know, if you're in Canada, in Ottawa, or at the state or provincial capitals, I'm going to tell people this is what I want to do. This is what I think would make our society better. And people will vote for you if they agree with you. And then you bring that agenda that you've spoken about to Washington or to Ottawa or to wherever your capital is, and you execute on that agenda. That's not really how politics is done much anymore. But the <laughs> yeah, reality exactly. is, the reality is, is that Joe Biden has had a very long and you know successful record as a politician running on. I am going to tell you what I'll do. If you like it, vote for me, and then I'm going to go do it. And one thing that was absent, both in the primary for the nomination as well as the general for the election, was mm-hmm. any mention of cannabis. It was not part of the conversation, and it still remains not part of the first hundred days. Right. So, the the view of legalization in the fall and all of these things, there has been no signal to date from the White House that that's in in any way part of their plan. However, the to be quite frank, injustice of um, uh, Shikari Richardson not being able to run because of a banned substance, which is not really banned in most places in the United States and is legal in our country, is is has and really water, I think brought this a lot play. of professional and sorry to cut you off there totally. uh, Chris but a lot of professional sports organization the NFL MLB have taken it off their list they don't exactly. test for it and even larger companies like Amazon for example it does not test for cannabis anymore right? so you see yeah exactly exactly mm-hmm. and you see the you see and there's you know Apple even um started to as changed some of their policies around their app ecosystem yep. um for mm-hmm. certain things related to cannabis so as a result, I think what's the most interesting here and what I would be watching the most for uh, the conversation around the U.S. federal cannabis landscape is actually what is the White House, if if anything, going to do on this particular issue? Because it's not just an issue of uh, it's not just an issue of, oh, you know, we're going to intervene to allow this amazing runner to be able to actually compete. It's a, it's a conversation around, you know, the, the appropriateness of the prohibition in the first place. Um, can we make one exception for somebody who is a high performance athlete, but then not for the rest. And there's, and and I think that that creates a really interesting, um, really interesting divide and and opens up a bunch of legal questions as well for people that would say, look to pursue federal legalization through the same channels that uh, Canadian medical access was pursued, which is through court challenges and and access that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And so, I mean, this could be, um, Maybe the the spark that uh, the the Biden administration needs, right? Because <clears throat> I was reading that there was a petition that was cir- uh, circulated to let sh- uh, to let Shikari run, and it gathered more than half a million signatures. So but, this is something that they cannot ignore. It's yeah, I, I believe it's a hundred. There's a there's a threshold. I think it's a hundred thousand. If you if you are able to organize and have a hundred at least a hundred thousand American citizens mm-hmm. sign on to petition to the White House or it, to some degree, there's there's a duty to acknowledge it from the White House. So there's a requirement right. to acknowledge it. And sometimes that acknowledgement is like, yep, we got it. 
thanks. <laughs> uh, and sometimes there's an actual meaningful commentary or uh, or change um, in some instances can happen from 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 those things. So for sure, and uh, she is one of the fastest athletes in the world right now, too, right? So this is and this is going to be a, a world stage, right? This is a uh, the first ever pandemic Olympics that's going to happen. No spectators. But it would, it's still it's still an Olympics. And yep. America takes Olympics very seriously. And, you know, the 100-meter dash is probably like the coup de grace or like the main event. Exactly. Um, in, exactly. The, in, in the Summer Olympics. So, I mean, this is, this is definitely something that's topical. This is definitely something with, those, with the uh, 600,000 sign- American signatures that they have. This is something that the Biden administration cannot ignore, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, like, you know, what are your, what are your thoughts on this? Like, do you, do you think this is just like, how do you think they're going to play it? Because, you know, you know, politics really well. Um, you've been in, in, in the industry for quite some time. And, you know, one of the comments you made was Biden is a career politician, which makes him quite predictable. Um, if you were to guess how his administration would, would sort of go about this, you know, what do you think that they're going to play? Obviously, you know, I'm not going to hold anything to you. Well, so yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one because so it's, at least to my read, this is actually something that was uh, the the ban was actually a U.S. Um, ban, um, and so it's actually not an international exercise. And technically, this is this is the wild part: is that technically her ban ends two days before the race that she would actually run in Tokyo. Yeah. But because they annulled her qualifying time, she technically doesn't qualify for Tokyo. So it's this really interesting kind of I don't oh, know what wow. they're going to do with it because. Yeah from an international perspective, she could actually in theory compete, but because they've taken away that, that, that clock time, um, she doesn't qualify per se. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, the, the white house, this is a white house conversation. This is, this is very much that. And I think the white house is going to be very, very specific. If anything, um, when they speak to this issue, I could see probably, you know, I, I'm not holding my breath, unfortunately, um, for Shikari. Uh, I I would love for this to just go 180 and for her to be able to run and there not be an issue. Yeah. But I think because of the precedent that it sets for the White House to intervene in a you know in in a, a national uh, ban on somebody for using what the White House and the rest of the federal government agrees is a controlled substance and. Um, and technically, since it's still Schedule One, has absolutely no medical value. Um, right. I don't think that the White House is going to risk the precedent that it might set in intervening. Um, that's that that's my read on the situation because the precedent that it sets may destabilize a lot of other things that they are mm-hmm. trying to get done right now. Yeah, and I think if I'm you know watching watching it play out, I think the hope is that you know once the Olympics kick off. This will cycle out of the you know the the news cycle, and there it'll be just something that we reference as you know at the next Olympics. Do you remember that time that before cannabis was legal in in America, this happened? You know, as opposed to um, it being you know the you know, the right thing happening per se. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And I think I can't remember which Olympics it was. I think it was the Canadian Olympics, the Winter Olympics in BC where like the entire snowboarding team tested positive for cannabis. Oh, you're talking about the, uh, the trial year that, uh, old Ross Rebliati tested <laughs> positive for a yeah. contact high, as he said. Um, and oh, there's yeah, a yeah, conversation, yeah. I mean, we're talking about the United States, um, uh, you know, 
in, in terms of what their governing bodies are and um, in terms of Mr. Rebliati's, um his his testing positive actually happened at the Olympics. Um, it was uh, it was kind of there wasn't really a clear direction set on it, but they didn't take his his medal away. Um, and I actually he this is this is really funny. Is like he and then he took that story and turned it into like a, a an effort to build out a cannabis company. Um, oh really? That's this is crazy. this is I mean yeah. it, to me I think this actually may have uh, of. Unfortunately for for him and probably a, a number of people that were involved may have fizzled before we even saw recreational kind of to come into force in 2018. But um, Ross's gold was a uh, a very uh, prominent um, brand in terms of at least the social media conversations around medical yeah. in the very early days, and uh, they worked quite hard to to try and create almost like a a, a grading system for cannabis. So they were the way that they worked is that they their their view was we're going to basically add a layer of cost to your cannabis to be certified by Ross, and that you would <laughs> you would you would have you know platinum certified strains and gold certified strains and it's just it's funny to look at look at where the thinking was you know in terms of what would be possible um, in Canada around cannabis and then to look at the draconian uh, limitations on on brand and marketing and how those have played out in just the idea of like a third party, like promotional service yeah. is so far beyond what would be allowable here that uh, you can only just kind of chuckle at it. That's too funny. Yeah. And sorry, I was, I was, I was remembering it incorrectly. It wasn't, um, it was a Canadian, right? So Ross yeah. was Canadian, obviously. Yeah. It was uh, the trial funny, year for snowboarding though. That was the thing. I'm pretty sure it was the trial year. He And he was a downhill guy. He was like a slalom guy. He wasn't even in the half pipe spinning yeah. around like the tomato. <laughs> But but you know what? Funny enough, it was actually a Winter Olympics in '98. Uh, I just googled it right now, and uh, it was in Japan. Nagano, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it yeah. was a great great year. Everybody yeah. was really happy that our stone snowboarder won a gold medal. Yeah, that's that was that was too funny. Um, but anyways, no. So that's that's very topical for for today. And sorry, I forgot to say, state the date. And I know it's we're already pretty deep into the episode, but we're recording on uh, Monday, uh, July twelfth at uh, around five p.m. here. So after markets have been closed. Um, and yeah, very topical uh, subject over there. And, you know, I, this is going to garner some more attention and this is going to sort of, uh, you know, with, with all the uh, the votes, put it back in front of uh, the Biden administration. And, and you know, something that's worth watching closely to see sort of how this unfolds. And I think uh, what you said uh, is a very plausible situation. So, yeah, we'll see how we'll see how things go. And, uh, you know, we'll, when when the verdict comes out, we'll have to have you back on. To give yeah, you, get yeah. your comments on it, we can we can see if it it becomes news or if it doesn't. <laughs> or if it just fizzles out, yeah, and then yeah. the next Winter Olympics, you and I will be like, "Hey, man, remember last time exactly. this happened?" <laughs> um, so going on, I mean, you know, as uh, cannabis continues to evolve, um, or investments continue to evolve in general, uh, new themes consistently come up, and uh, there's one that's been up for or up. There's one that's been out for quite some time, but it's been really, really, really taking um, uh, precedent recently, and that's uh, ESG, so Environmental Sustainable uh, Goals. Um, the- it actually stands for – I'll just start to jump in there, Abby. Yeah. It stands for Environment, Social, and Governance. Okay, sorry, it's SDG, yeah. right? Sustainable Development Goals. That's what it is, right? Yeah. So you're the, yeah. you're you're hybriding the UN Sustainable yeah. Development Goals, which dovetail quite nicely into ESG. There with you the go. ESG itself, but yeah, yeah. Ah, perfect, perfect. See, this is why we have you on. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so SDG, which is um, 
what the UN puts out, and that's their uh, their their sustainable development goals. There's about uh, 17 of them that they put out a long time ago, and it's always been sort of in the background. And there's been a certain couple funds that have sort of came out and said, "Hey, listen, like we've got to allocate a certain amount of part of our." Uh, uh, allocation towards this. Uh, and then it wasn't really taken seriously, but recently it's really caught fire in the sense that a lot of people are really, really, really taking this seriously. Um, and you know, there's, there's, there's a term that's being used in the fixed income world called green bonds. And in order to qualify for a green bond, you have to uh, meet a certain criteria of, of hitting a certain amount of these, uh, these thresholds. And it's a feel good story too, right? It's, um, it's a story that really helps, um, uh, investors feel good about uh, good about their investments because they're doing something that's sort of combating climate change that's working on that's not you know taking advantage of uh, emerging markets or um, you know it's uh, being better for like life on land or life below waters as they call it and um, one of the sectors that has really 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 taken this seriously is mining I'm seeing yeah. more and more uh, mining companies that come out with uh esg comp- uh, with an esg component that uh goes on these uh these development goals and <clears throat> cannabis isn't immune to this and if you look at how cannabis sort of is set up and chris you were actually the one who was talking about this if you look at how cannabis sort of set up like this is something that cannabis companies should start looking for uh because when it does you know when you know, let's say interstate commerce happens federal legalization happens like capital starts coming in like uh on the like like the floodgates opening capital starts coming in the next catalyst could definitely be this esg component and um so i mean with that chris i wanted to kind of get your thoughts on this um you know do you see this being actually like a topic do you see you know cultivators really taking this seriously uh or do you think this is just going to be a fad and like a fly-by-night operation and all of a sudden we're just going to forget about it and go back to being our, our regular ways yeah, I I certainly do not see um, ESG and just I, I, like I'll rewind, I'll, I'll kind of pull it, pull the focus out a little bit and say I I do not think that sustainability, whether it's social or or environmental, is a fad for businesses. It needs mm-hmm. to be like you have to think about it in terms of the long term health of the business, not the long term health of the you know the individual shareholders that currently own the business at this time. But in fact, that long-term value and, and the reality is if there's no planet to operate on, then there's, then there's nothing to operate. So I think it's something that you know, we've historically kind of looked at regulators to solve this. And this is, this is something that, you know, we think, okay, well, regulators, they're the ones that are going to make sure that we're hitting the right emission levels, we're hitting this, right. hitting that. And what is pretty clear is that, you know, you look at what happened when president Trump entered the white house, the regulations evaporated. Mm-hmm. And if you're if you're if you're a, a Republican, you would argue it's that the business community is responsible for solving this themselves. Why yeah, put government red tape attached right. to it mm-hmm. and let's let these businesses recognize these issues? Unfortunately, it never really seems to go that way when it comes to environmental impacts at the very least. Um, social impacts, I would imagine probably the same, uh, especially when you think about um when you're kind of thinking about businesses in the context of labor laws and outsourcing and all those things. So not to get too, too deep in, ter- in, terms, of, in terms of that particular direction to say that ESG is definitely something that is, that is very relevant to the cannabis space um, for a number of reasons. And I think it's going to become more relevant to the US cannabis industry 
as things start to inch forward. So I'm not going to pin a time to it because I, you know, not being in the predictions business is is always mm-hmm. a safe place to be. But I will say that eventually we're going to see legal cannabis in the United States. It's going to happen at some point. You and I have talked about this, Abby, about the crown of cannabis, um, as I've as I've described it, and this is where it actually dovetails really interestingly into the conversation about sustainability. Cannabis grown indoors in climates that are under snow or that are um, too cold to um, house the plants, so to speak, for most of the year is an enormous use of water, enormous use of power. It is very much a a drain to you know the grid, so to speak, but it's also right. energy intensive and as a result, the carbon is the carbon creation is is significant. Now, if you talk to you know uh, somebody like the wonderful Jeff Whaling, who's been the president of the Hemp Association um, in America, he will very quickly uh, point out, and he would say this to me that that cannabis plants, cannabis um, sativa, which includes hemp but also cannabis in general, is a very very successful carbon sink in terms of the carbon that it captures and absorbs. Now, with that in mind, that still means that we have to dispose of it. You know, properly, not using incinerators, um, composting it properly. You know, th- those types of things. So when you look at the crown of cannabis, you look at, and I say the crown, and I'll, I'll kind of try and visually illustrate this for for the listeners, so it makes a bit of sense. Mm-hmm. If you look at the United States on a map, think about where cannabis is actually grown and where it's recreational and legal. It's, it kind of runs this, apart from like a couple little gaps across the Canadian border and the in on the Dakota side of things. And, um, there is basically you you can run your way up the west coast across the canadian border and down the east coast the truth is the most arid land in the united states is for outdoor production is in places where cannabis is not legal in the ways that it is legal in other states so i'm thinking kind of the tobacco belt region well eventually that's going to become a the most cost effective way to produce cannabis for aftermarket products. So for, for things like vaporizers, for food additives, edibles, for beverages, you name it, because outdoor product is not a, it's it's not a beauty contest, right? It's, it's about producing essentially a commodity grade product that contains ingredients. Yeah. Commercialized or commercial, like like cultivating cannabis on a commercialized scale with the whole, the whole uh, belief being lowest cost producer. Exactly. Exactly. So you've got, you've got this kind of, you've got these, what, what, relatively speaking, if you're talking about outdoor grow in the middle of the country versus in middle to you know south middle of the country, to you're talking about indoor grow, kind of up the crown, um, the cost of growing is is night and day different in right. terms of what what it's actually going to cost you to do it. Now, I'm sure that there's some listeners right. that would say that the those the the crown, so to speak, is a little bit potentially more storm protected. But as we see with things like floods and wildfires and so on and so forth, it's not necessarily a guarantee. Right. Um, so yeah, sorry. And, and one thing, Chris, you were saying before to me, which really sort of helped me visualize this, was you called it the tobacco belt, right? Yeah. That's where that's what's missing. So yeah, yeah, and and it's, so I think like as far as the sustainability of cannabis, there's going to be definitely a need to uh, incorporate outdoor production. Um, that's where you can get the true carbon capture, right? That, that's where massive hemp farms really do achieve quite a bit as carbon sinks. Um, again, provided that the the product itself, the waste product is not incinerated, which ultimately just fires the carbon right back in the atmosphere. But the, so you've got, you know, the crown, you've got this, this more arid production environment within the United States. And that kind of is, is, is a dynamic that 
you're going to have to account for when you look at multi-state operators and you look at what their impact is environmentally with the United States. And beyond that, I'll kind of go back to something we talked about just before ESG, which is if you're looking at the president of the United States and you want to know what his focus is and what his interest is, well, it's the environment. It's definitely climate change. And, energy, when it's, yeah. and when it's clean energy and when it's understood that the indoor production um, of, of, of products like these can be astronomically taxing um, and, and can create a significant um, carbon off gas, then there becomes some hesitation in terms of moving forward without the right environmental um, sustainability approaches into the business. There's companies like... Um, there's one company called uh, Net Zero, or uh, yeah, Net Zero, that is just like ultimately just and and this to speak to your uh, your mention on on the mining industry. I believe that they're primarily active in the mining space, and then they're kind of branching out into cannabis, to be honest. Uh, and their whole focus is basically going in, working with a business to manage what their what their carbon you know their carbon footprint is, and essentially establishing that right offset, and not in the way that. Um, there's a lot of carbon trading companies that will essentially just sell the same, you know, acreage of trees and say you offset your carbon because you gave us money and we own this forest. But rather, you know, kind of looking at ways to actually transactionally do it and maybe even create an economy around it. So there's there's a lot of movement around the sustainability product. And where I where I want to kind of pull in the conversation as well is on the S of ESG because cannabis has a really interesting opportunity here. I would not lay the the fault, so to speak, at the industry's feet when it comes to social repair, equity, social justice around cannabis and the harms of the war on drugs. I right. don't think that the industry created that. I actually think that there's a much broader conversation about all the companies that did you know, cross promotions around saying no to drugs and actually materially benefited by you know, selling a t-shirt with their logo on it and that perpetuated the war on drugs. Like I think, you know, there's, I'm not going to name any of them, but everybody knows, you know, the biggest companies and, and many sports teams were, you know, huge say no to drugs teams that benefited from the marketing, but ultimately helped contribute to, um, you know, to, to the, to the adverse effects of the war on drugs. Where I think cannabis can be different is I think cannabis has an opportunity because we talk pretty, pretty significantly about, um, the equity provisions around cannabis, ensuring that there is proper representation um, and that there is people who that there's to some degree. And, and I'll use this word, and I know that this word is extremely loaded um, in reference to this topic among others, but there is to some degree, you know, a need to ensure that, um, that everybody has access to being able to participate in the cannabis space and that it, right. that it, that it, that if you're benefiting from it, that there should be kind of some contribution and reparation, so to speak, to the harms that have been caused in the name of a product that you're profiting from. Right. So without without getting too far down on the soapbox, what I will say is that a material issue, which is what ESG is built around, these are material issues to the business, the things that are going to affect the business's bottom line, mm-hmm. is a cannabis's com- a cannabis company's contribution to that social repair, to undoing the harms of the war on drugs is a material issue to these businesses. Right. And certain states are sort of looking at that, right? Like we've got like Illinois, for example, you have a, uh, the, the, they're calling it the social equity programs. Yes. Yeah. And okay. so, and that's been a challenge, right? The, the, I would say that the one successful uh, part of the United States that has really managed to pull off a, um, a, a well-executed and community-driven equity um, 
equity exercises is, is Oakland. And that's a unique environment with a lot of really engaged advocates and, and people that just get it. And I think that there's a lot of work that's being done to try and establish um, the similar similar uh, categories within applications, whether it's for dispensaries or production or you name it. Um, but at the end of the day, unless the businesses themselves, and, and this is like any business operator in, that's working in cannabis, recognize that it's incumbent on them to be part of the solution. And then they can stand that up and say, hey, investors who are really focused on ESG scores, this is how much of a contribution we've made to undoing the harms of the war on drugs. Right. And guess what? The reason why that's significant is a number, is, there's a number of reasons why it's significant. One of them is, I mean, the obvious one is that there is, if if people have been arrested for possession of cannabis in a lot of these cases, they're likely somebody that might be interested in the future in potentially purchasing cannabis. Well, with the amount of people with criminal records that simply can't necessarily get access to these products, if right. you're a company that is actually helping to improve access for individuals to make their own free choice and what they want to consume, that is going to be a positive effect on your business because you've you've created you've created another opportunity. But beyond that, it's it's employment, right? There's mm-hmm. there's bans on the ability to actually employ people with felonies within cannabis production operations. That right. is just simply not you're you're losing an enormous amount of mind share in what you could possibly be doing for your businesses. And so why I say that this needs to be something material to businesses is that it can't be looked at as a regulatory step. And right now in a lot of cases, it does get looked at as a regulatory step of like, I need to check that equity provision box. And that's yeah. not and that's not the approach at all. Because if you're just doing that, if you're just saying, I'm going to check that box, then you are ignoring a huge swath of America. You're ignoring a huge community of people. And you're ultimately profiting off something that is that is put hundreds and thousands of black and brown Americans behind bars and, and probably mm-hmm. some white Americans as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, wasn't that the whole point of the Moore Act, though? Wasn't that what the Moore Act was sort of going for to go back and uh, anybody who had been who had been charged with with cannabis sort of get um, uh, I'm drawing the word, the losing the word here, but uh, basically get uh, like, you know, uh, stripped off. Of- yeah. So the, the the record clearance and expungement efforts and, the, yeah. and there's and there's a lot of so there's there is kind of the ability to federally address some of those convictions, but a lot of cannabis convictions are are state felonies and that's kind of state to state. I think the state of New York has done a pretty stand-up job um, mm-hmm. in terms of really trying to push for those systemic clearances. Um, one of the interesting things in Canada, the reason why that hasn't happened up here and uh, and it's not really vocally talked about, even though it should happen, is that in Canada, we don't have the systems that actually can keep track of these things. So a lot of one of the mis mis yeah that's actually very true. Like there's there's a there's a misunderstanding that like oh there's a there's a central system for criminal records and you can go in you can just say everybody you know column sort delete all these ones those records are gone (laughs) that's just not the case. In fact, do you know where the most complete record database accessible record database for Canadian uh, Canadian uh, felonies is? No, no, whereabouts? United States Border Services. (laughs) <laughs> so when you put that oh, in context, right. the reality is most yeah. people with cannabis possessions in Canada, yeah. the, the reason why you don't have you know our, our Prime Minister Trudeau standing up and saying, we're going to clear these records is they don't know where they are and they well, don't they know don't how many records. are. 
They yeah. just don't. Yeah, that's funny. So they're not going to do anything. No, it's, it's true. A, I mean, you know, that's one thing. Yeah. That's one thing that whenever we hear um, when the federal government is getting involved, we assume that they have this centralized uh, like record that houses all of our information, and that's like a very well kept record, right? And more often than not, it's not. It's 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 not the case. Even the CRA, for example, has gotten my stuff wrong quite a few times. Yeah, and that's and that's probably one of the more complete uh, systems of individual. I mean, the, the SIN card system is probably the, the biggest federal, mm-hmm. um, federal database for individuals. So all this to say, like I, on the ESG side, just to kind of lay it out. And this is, this is where I, I'm not going to d- dive too deep into the G part of ESG and cannabis, but yeah. I don't think it needs it. I don't think it, I think it goes without saying that governance has not been super clean historically in no. cannabis. And it's something that if you're looking at the sector would be, I'd, argue a priority um, in terms of bringing money in and looking at that good governance and, and, and how these companies are being run and, and the right policies in place and the right approaches to, to, to expanding and scaling and, and, and how the boards operate as well. Right. But what about like the environmental impacts? Because obviously the social, the social impact, of course, that's, that, that's uh, extremely important. Uh, but the environmental impact that we're seeing, you know, a lot of these cultivation facilities that get built out, they're massive cultivation facilities. You kind of touched on it with on the, uh, the Eastern seaboard and the cold climates and uh, the amount of harm that they do uh, to, to the environment. But you look at um, everything else that's sort of going on in terms of cannabis, like is there, I haven't seen any cultivation company that comes out and says, Hey, we're net zero right now. Like, obviously they don't need to, because of, you know, there's a, there's, there's a lot of other catalysts that are coming in. There's a lot more capital that's going to get attracted in here, but eventually it's going to get to a place where, you know, people are going to look at the environmental impact. For example, even like with, with Bitcoin, you know, Elon Musk came out and said, Hey, this is not environmentally friendly. So we're not going to accept Tesla, whatever his, or for Tesla, whatever his reasons were, he vocally came out and spoke about the environmental impact, right? Yeah, and it's and a, it's a similar that like Bitcoin is not a not a bad comparison in terms of heat and uh, HVAC systems that are needed to be churning like twenty four seven to control mm-hmm. environments from lights uh, that are powered the whole time. So yeah, you know, I, I would imagine that you know a, a GPU mining a bunch of Bitcoin is you know, is is probably generating a, a we know they generate a ton of heat, but it's also yeah. churning through a mountain of power. Yeah, and I I don't imagine that it's not the same as as a grow room with lights and with HVAC and, and, you know, you've got the heat, you've got the, all those pieces. Um, what I was like, what I'd say is like, I think there, there's definitely a need to consider the environmental impact of, of cannabis products. Um, I think that there, there have been a couple of companies that have, that are, you know, trying to make those steps forward. Some have really strong recycling programs for the packaging because, the excess of packaging in Canada uh, was very much a problem at the at the outset, and they seem to the, the government seemed to get a little bit more flexible. But the the burden of how much information needed to go on these packages um, mm-hmm. really created a, a, a way too much container uh, debris, oh, yeah, sure. so to speak. Um, but then beyond that, I think the I think the the sustainability of these businesses is ultimately going to be tied to how good the consumer can feel about what that company is doing. Um, and, and, and really in, in, as far as the investment conversation is concerned, I think it's really easy to kind of say, you know, we, we, we bought these offsets, this is what we're doing. But if you're not reporting it the right way, if you're not documenting it the right way and you're not demonstrating it, like I think where we are right now is we're, we're at the point where, 
people are getting a lot smarter about how they're investing in cannabis. They're looking at the operators within the businesses. They're looking at how the businesses actually move forward and structure their strategies. And I think that it's it's not like the BlackRock letter around ESG came out what like three years ago, and that completely changed the conversation of ESG. At the at that point, it was it was a European kind of grading system because they were much more progressive around the environment. Most U.S. banks said we don't have no time for that. We don't really yeah. care. And then, but when BlackRock moves, you know, the the world moves with it, so to speak. And right. um, and I think that if you're looking at sustainability in cannabis, just to kind of tie it up a little bit, I would say really do look at it. Don't just take the press releases for face value, right? Ask for reports, <laughs> yeah. understand yeah, what that's the footprint is. Uh, that's yeah, one thing that we cannot hammer home enough, right? It's yeah, that, uh, yeah. You've got to do a deep dive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I, ESG is not going to go anywhere um, mm. when it comes to cannabis. And I think you're only really seeing companies start to ramp up. And uh, yeah, to to that point, I mean, Hexo, uh, as much as I, I I definitely applauded them, our last call in terms of some of their strategy and approach, they they came out with, I think, the first press release around, you know, carbon neutral and, and offsets. And, um, and I think that that's interesting, but without a strategy, it doesn't make a ton of sense because then it just no, looks absolutely. performative, right? It looks like, okay, well, we bought this stuff, leave us alone, you know, um, as opposed to this is why we're doing it. This is where we're going with it. These are the pieces that we're going to lay out. This is our three to five year strategy around, you know, reducing the the output of carbon in these different parts of our businesses. We're going to shift to this type of recyclable that. We don't see that. And that should be that should be the first thing that you do before you go and buy a bunch of carbon offsets. So um, I think, you know, I think looking at the businesses and understanding their plans for doing it, it's not that complicated to produce less carbon. You know, you just don't produce as much and you explain how you're going to produce less. And I think anybody who's committed to sustainability from an environmental perspective should be able to articulate that pretty clearly. For sure. And, uh, and another thing with <clears throat> when, when a lot of these companies have to go more environmentally friendly, there is added cost to the capital. So this is why I thought it was a very interesting topic to bring up um, on the on this podcast, because I haven't really heard too many people talk about uh, the ESG component for cannabis. I've seen it, obviously, in other sectors. Um but there is going to be an added cost to this, right? And so not all the companies are going to be able to sort of uh, absorb that cost. And so I think um, some of the larger names, like, for example, you know, Kiralee Cresco, um, actually, yeah, they, they should probably be on the vanguard of this. And they should be sort of going out and um, I, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say retrofitting their facilities, but it should be a topic of, of discussion. But I think because there's so many short-term catalysts, nobody really has to pay attention to this. But there is going to come a time when, all those catalysts are going to materialize and what's next, right? And it's just like any other sector, cannabis is not immune to what's going on outside. Well, you're you're absolutely right. And and you know, without without specifically saying anyone, I'll just describe the circumstance and say that the least sustainable structure is multi-state redundancy. There's so <laughs> much waste in that type of structure of a business, it yeah. is not sustainable. And so you you know you you and I were just chatting about the Jeffries report, and I do think that you know to say legalization will be in place by 2026 is an interesting hypothesis. I think it's 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 likely that there is a um, maybe a green light to legalization by 2026, and and a regulated framework uh, would potentially need to be rolled out. But that aside, I think from the from the 
the perspective of, you know, stepping in here and saying we need this to be, um, you know, really sustainable business or these cannabis companies need to be more sustainable. Yeah, I think that um, I don't, I actually don't think that there's a cost attached to it. Like when you use the MSO example, yeah, it actually is a massive redu- reduction in cost. Yeah, you're right. If you're so, streamlining a ton of different parts of the business you're right. and you're choosing, say, the most um, the most viable outdoor production environment for your cannabis in, say, some part of the United States that doesn't that's not a desert, which, I mean, growing the amount of monsoon crops that get grown in, in the deserts uh, in the United States is, is, is in and of itself a, a interesting and unsustainable issue. Um, <laughs> I'm just glad that they'd never agreed to pump the Great Lakes um, all the way through the Colorado River. That was a whole proposition <laughs> many, many years ago. Um, but when you look at it and you say, okay, you're an MSO and you've got operations you kind of across the crown of the United States in terms of cannabis production. If you streamline all those things and then you move your production to, a, to an environment that gives you three grow cycles a year, yeah. and then you know hurricane season is downtime, yeah, that is an infinitely more sustainable business that is way more profitable than growing in places where you know you have one grow season and uh, one grow temperature season. variances of sixty degrees Celsius. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's so I I I think that it's a I think it's a false um you know it's it's a bit of a false statement to 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 think that it, there's going to be an attached cost to sustainability, especially since like when when companies like cannabis companies set themselves up the amount of like infrastructure and spend and all those pieces. Oh, it's astronomical. That's unbelievably expensive. I actually think that there's an interesting opportunity for people to just stand up, you know, um, very, very small scale outdoor production um, across the United States. I mean, the reality is federal legalization. This is a crop. So you either got, you're going to have to come up with some really interesting farming laws around it. Or you're going to have to let people grow their own too. And then if they can grow their own, you're going to have to figure out a way to prevent people from selling their own. In Canada, it's a little bit different. But in the United States, uh, there's a there's a massive, massive view that you can't tell me what to do. And if I want to do this and it's legal, then I'm going to do it. And so the idea of you know creating a, a system where you you everybody can grow, you know, four plants like we do in Canada, but that everybody's going to collectively just observe the, like, we're not going to traffic it though. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen in America. I think that, (laughs) I think that everybody's going to look at it and say, this is mine and I can sell it at my farmer's market if I want. And I think that if you're not growing sustainably, or if you're not finding a way to do it at a reduced lower overhead cost, then you're going to be challenged to compete with what will be the new gray market that is completely, you know, legal uh on a federal scale <laughs> and, and and that's interesting and actually you know as, as you were chatting my brain was sort of just racing here um the, yes the, the the current mso model is it's highly inefficient right each state is basically it's like its own country and then that goes into the discussion of interstate commerce which is obviously going to happen before federal legalization and this could be something that actually pushes towards interstate commerce you know we've heard about this since you know since day one since like the the since the early days of the cannabis industry we've talked about this um but this could be something else that sort of pushes towards getting getting to interstate commerce, right? Because, you know, it's uh, it's a very topical subject, and just like you said, not only are you going to achieve 
uh, efficiencies throughout your entire supply chain by cultivating in the proper climates, it's also going to have a better, Im- it's going to be low, it's obviously going to be cheaper, it's going to be more efficient, and it's going to have a more positive impact on the environment. I mean, I can't see anybody who would sort of go against that argument, right? The only thing I could say is each individual state. So for example, like a state like, you know, New York or uh, even Massachusetts would be like, well, no, 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 we want to, these companies have already built up these businesses, they might push back. But even then, it's eventually they're going to realize that it is, this is the way that uh, the sector is going to go. But having said that, though, <clears throat> there isn't obviously a defined date for interstate commerce. I know some people are sort of gearing their portfolio to uh, or investing as if it's going to come down in the next couple of years. I mean, it's something that's on the top of my mind, but I still look at limited license states that are like uh, late stage adult, early stage rec, uh, converting to early stage rec as the low hanging fruit still here. But, you know, if you do start thinking further and further and further out, your brain starts racking. And um, that's kind of how this whole ESG component, uh, this whole ESG topic sort of came to be. Right. And, um, yeah. and it's pretty interesting. And yeah. just, uh, you know, as we, as we wrap up over here, one last thing we, we we wanted to talk about that whole Tilray thing and uh, the Tilray you you had a very funny analogy of Tilray was the original GameStop and if everybody remembers what happened in February of twenty twenty one of this year GameStop just skyrocketed and it became you know sort of created the whole term meme stock um, Tilray had something very similar to it it was a really retail heavy investor base. And the valuation went insane. I think at, at one point it was like a $300 million valuation. And this was when companies were like nothing, right? Um, and so you had said that, you know, they garnered a lot of interest. The stock price rose, but it did not economically benefit the company. And the reason why was, I guess it was like, well, I use the term tight share structure. Uh, but you were saying, you said it was mostly because all the, all the shares were restricted. Um, do you want to just sort of elaborate on that, on like why the stock just sort of skyrocketed as as much as it did? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it, I don't. It, you really set it up to be a lot more mysterious than it really is. I I don't know that it. I don't know if the share shares were restricted per se, but the the share pool, right? Like the actual free trading shares was not nearly the same size as a lot of the other operators. Mm-hmm. The thing that blew Tilray out of the water was really like you kind of had this. You had a a community of American investors. The the founders of Tilray were American. Uh, it was an American company that set itself up in um, in in British Columbia, and they rocketed because they were the first cannabis company on the Nasdaq, and it, yeah. and it exploded because all of a sudden. Everybody in the United States said that company's on the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ won't let something illegal be listed there. Take my money. And <laughs> it piled in and it went up fast because the free trading share pool was not as big. And yes. so so it was it was really, really like I think it, the the thing that was really interesting about it is like they could have done some really interesting stuff if they had actually, you know, been a little more strategic about it and like split the shares. Like when they were real big, or I just mean, that capital could've... raise, right? Yeah, like the it... stock because they IPO'd in July 2018 at about 17 bucks, and it ran up to what 300 dollars in mid September. So crazy, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you capitalize on that, but um, this is also a very important reason why it's really important to understand cap tables because the cap table will tell you where all the shares are, and you know you could look at a fully diluted number, and that fully diluted number could be 
could be quite high. But if you ask the right questions and find out, well, what's actually free trading, you might be able to find yourself some some opportunities where, you know, the free trading stock is a, is a fraction of what the actual fully diluted cap table really is. And mm-hmm. if you do get some sort of momentum like that, even though I'm just anecdotally speaking here, this isn't, these aren't real numbers, but let's say the fully diluted number is a hundred million, uh, the valuation is a hundred million dollars, but the free trading shares is only $30 million, right? Um, if that stock gets some corner, some interest that there's only 30 million shares that are actually free trading that mm-hmm. those 30 millions could just skyrocket up. And we saw that sort of happen with, uh, with, with Tilray. Yeah. I know it happened a long time ago, but it's just, it was just funny when you and I were chatting. I was like, oh, this is, this is definitely worth, uh, worth mentioning. And, you know, I always like to stress the importance of looking at a cap table. And that was probably the most prime example of why you should look at a cap table. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but with that, man, so happy to have you on that kind of wraps up our episode over here. Um, you know, uh, as always, it's always, uh, very fun to have you on here. Very different perspective, different insights that you bring to the table that sort of most of the investment community sort of misses, but you know, it's all, it adds quite a bit to it. And, um, absolutely. And if there's anything that you'd like to add, Chris, you know, take the time and go, go nuts. Yeah, I mean, I, I not not a ton to add. I think uh, I think that the the next kind of if we're looking at the Jeffries report, the next six years is going to be really interesting yeah. in cannabis in the United States. I think that the uh, the economics of interstate uh, commerce is really interesting. I think it's hard to underestimate the scorekeeping of uh, of politics in America right now, and the the idea of interstate commerce being greenlit at a federal level, and then having a state that is heavily Republican controlled, challenge it in court, uh, a court that is not necessarily uh, leaning on the progressive direction of things, could see interstate commerce be tied up a little bit. And we may uh, we may be looking for a little bit of a different action. But I do think that um, I do think that you're absolutely right when you say that the multi-state operator should be looking at sustainability. Um, I think that it is it, you know, unfortunately right now, the way that the system's set up is that prohibition advantages them. And so if they're not looking to what the future of cannabis is, then, you know, I think, uh, I think having redundancy in, in every different state is great. Um, but all this to say that if you're, if you have a, a huge overhead in every single state and you have federal legalization, you're gonna have to fold up a bunch of stuff, sell it off. It's going to be a little bit cumbersome. And I think that there's a possible reset on the table of who the market leader is when you see federal legalization happen. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that everybody gets a fair shot and not just the mm-hmm. people that are willing to kind of contravene federal law and find a really interesting convoluted legal structure to actually circumvent <laughs> it are the, I, I'd like to see, you know, cannabis be for everybody in America, as opposed to the folks that have, you know, the strongest legal teams in some cases. No, absolutely. And, and, and I couldn't agree with you more. You know, it's, uh, it's something that we you know we, we truly believe in, we truly do believe in, in the cannabis sector. And uh, it's the, the, you know, I think you just said it there, very well articulated. Um, so with that, guys, thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions, or if you'd like to ask Chris a question or myself a question, feel free to email us. It is cinpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. Take care. Awesome. Awesome. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. 
Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decisions, an investor should seek individualized advice from, from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.